You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Bob Trapani, Jr., Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation and Aids to Navigation Technician. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeremy. It's great to be back again with you. Always fun. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. So uh, this is January 22nd, 2023, and this is episode 209 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear part one of a two-part interview with three people connected to Goat Island Light Station in Kennebunkport, Maine. Bob, you took part in the interview. We'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, you also took part in a group discussion uh, for episode 207 a couple of weeks ago, all about the recent storm damage at lighthouses. So since we last talked about that, anything further to report uh, at American Lighthouse Foundation lighthouses uh, so far? I'll tell you what a storm that was, huh? I mean, uh, we don't even know if all of our lighthouses yet, some of the offshore ones, we still don't know. We won't know for a little bit as to what kind of damage. But uh, we do know that uh, at Wood Island, we did suffer some damage to the uh, boathouse, uh-huh. the island and the platform that surrounds that boathouse. Uh, thankfully, it looks like the wooden ways survived uh, decently. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, we'll, we're going to see it's We'll see more of this as we go forward. And then, of course, we're in the middle of the planning season for the upcoming season. So here you have this storm comes through and then all of a sudden it puts all this extra focus and energy to have to respond to this kind of damage at certain places like we have at Portsmouth Harbor. At the same time, hey, we got to keep moving and get ready for 2023 because that's going to be here before we know it as far as the season opening. Yeah. Well, anybody who listens to the podcast knows already because we've mentioned it several times in the last uh, two or three weeks. But as you said, we did have some damage at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, which is uh, close to where I live here on the New Hampshire seacoast. Uh, the walkway, the 80 foot wooden walkway leading out from the uh, basically from the fort wall for Constitution out to the base of the lighthouse. Uh, that was largely swept away in the storm we had on December 23rd. And you were one of the first people to really uh, check out the damage closely there. Uh, And we're looking at different options and there's a hope that the walkway could be rebuilt as early as spring, but we'll see what happens with that. So uh, that must've been interesting to, to see that damage a few days after it happened. Well, I'll tell you, you sit there and you look at it. You looked how the one section was totally ripped apart from the other section of the walkway. And you begin to realize uh, it's a stark, uh, stark evidence of how powerful the sea can really be. And that was probably child's play for that storm that came through. You know, it's just amazing. No, Palma Rocks was another place where we had uh, for ALF that had some damage. Uh, it's part of the island itself collapsed in on the, uh, the north side and uh, the float, uh, the dock system there was under two, three foot of water and did some damage to that. So uh, again, I think as we move forward, we're going to learn more about this storm. It's definitely one for the history books. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't like to talk about it too much because I don't want to jinx us. But as you said, uh, we've got to prepare ourselves for for possibility of more uh, of this kind of thing. Uh, So we'll do the best we can to prepare. That's all we can do is Try to prepare. <laughs> yeah, the job of the modern lighthouse keeper gets gets more interesting as we go forward. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, our subject today is Goat Island Light Station in Cape Porpoise, which is a village of uh, the town of Kenny Bunkport in southern Maine, about a little over a half hour north of where I am in Portsmouth, New Hampshire here. Bob, uh, you and I have visited 
Goat Island together. I think a couple of times. Uh, and both of yeah, and both of us have known Scott and Karen Dombrowski, the caretakers there for for quite a long time now. So, what kinds of things come to mind for you when you think about Goat Island? I'll tell you, one of the first things that comes to mind is just their ability to keep going. Three decades there at that place, uh, and just the ongoing successes that they've had. They just they just don't stop. You get there, you have a station. As you know, Jeremy's the house. They had the boathouse, the oil house, and the lighthouse, and in time, they then add the connector building to the lighthouse and keeper's house. They rebuild the old bell tower that was uh, once there. And just the other improvements and then the adaptive reuse that they have accomplished at that site over the course of three decades. Amazing stuff. It's, it's an example to many other lighthouse projects of how you know a group of people who, who are dedicated, tenacious, and savvy can really make some good things happen. I agree. It's uh, in really good hands there. So, uh, Bob, please help me tell everyone a, a bit more about Goat Island and our guests today. Sure, Jeremy. Cape Porpoise is a small coastal village in the town of Kennebunkport, Maine. The area was visited by the English explorer John Smith in 1614, and there was a year-round settlement by 1629. More than a dozen islands protect its deep sheltered harbor, and it grew into a busy center for fishing and lobstering. Goat Island Light Station was established in 1833 to help guide mariners into the harbor at Cape Porpoise. A 20-foot stone tower and dwelling were built, and John Lord of Kennebunk became the first keeper at a salary of $350 per year. In 1859, the tower and house were rebuilt. The brick tower is 25 feet tall with its light 38 feet above mean high water. Goat Island was always a family light station with a succession of civilian keepers and later Coast Guard keepers until its 1990 automation. Coast Guard keeper Marty Kane and his family were on the island for a memorable blizzard in early February 1978 when powerful seas folded the covered walkway between the house and tower, quote, like a big accordion, and swept it off the island. The Coast Guard removed the canes from the island by helicopter a short time later. In 1990, Goat Island Light became the last lighthouse in Maine to be automated. Brad Culp, his wife Lisa, and their two children, Christian and Dakota, were Maine's last traditional lighthouse family. For a time during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, Coast Guard personnel remained stationed at Goat Island, which offers a good vantage point on the Bush estate at Walker's Point. The island served as an air-sea command center, complete with a radar beacon. In 1992, Goat Island was leased to the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust. The light station officially became the property of the trust under the Maine Lights Program in 1998. Since its founding in 1969, the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust has protected well over 2,000 acres of town land from development. The trust has carried out many restoration projects at Goat Island, but it currently faces a new challenge with the failure of the underwater cable that provides electrical power to the island. That's right. Yeah, we have uh, three guests today. Beginning almost 30 years ago, Scott Dombrowski, the island overseer for the trust, spent summers on the island with his wife, Karen, who's also with us today, and their two sons. And Tom Bradbury is the executive director of the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust. Bob, uh, you and I went to the headquarters of the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust uh, last month, a few weeks ago, to talk with Scott, Karen, and Tom. There were a lot of things to talk about, uh, 
and uh, I found it all very interesting. I didn't want to cut out too much of it. So I split it into two parts and we'll hear part two next week. So let's listen to part one of our conversation now. I'm here this afternoon in beautiful Kennebunkport, Maine. We're at the headquarters of the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust, uh, which is a, a nice place to visit. There's trails here you can walk and everything else. It's a uh, nice facility here. And I'm here with uh, Scott and Karen Dombrowski, uh, who uh, for many, many years have been involved with the trust as the caretakers for Goat Island Lighthouse. And I've known you guys for more than 25 years somewhere in that neighborhood. We were just talking about that. And also uh, with us is Tom Bradbury, who's the executive director of the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust. And also with us is my good friend, Bob Trapani, Jr., executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation and lighthouse technician. And Bob's going to join in the conversation here as well. And Bob goes way back with the Dombrowskis as well. So it's great to be here. Thank you guys so much for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome, Jeremy. All right, so uh, let's start, uh, Scott, let's start with you and a little bit of background here. I know you're originally from Marblehead, Mass. I'm from uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, very close to Marblehead. Uh, I don't think we knew each other as kids, but uh, what brought you from Marblehead to uh, Kenny Bunkport and Cape Porpoise? Sure, Jeremy. Well, uh, Karen and I met in college in 1978, and Karen grew up and spent summers um, down at Goose Rock Beach here in Kenny Bunkport. And this, as soon as we came here, kind of knew that this would be a, an awesome place to be able to raise our kids. And um, out of the hustle and bustle of uh, what was going on down in Marblehead. And uh, we got married in Cape Porpoise in 1982. So we knew we'd live here at some point, And um, we were able to move here and get involved with the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust. Mm-hmm. So, Karen, apparently uh, you're not from Marblehead originally, right? <laughs> nope, nope. I uh, grew up winters in Melrose, Massachusetts, summered at Goose Rocks Beach, and um, did all my summer jobs and stuff down here, and went to college, met Scott. Mm -hmm. And largely raised your kids on the island, right? Yep. Kids were five and seven years old when we started taking care of Goat Island. And uh, now they're 35 and 37 years old. Yeah. I believe I first met Eric when he was, it would have been about 1996. So he was uh, quite. He was nine. Nine, yeah. Nine yeah. years old. And he was kind of small then. He's, they're both uh, very tall now. <laughs> they're both a lot taller than us. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Scott, uh, you are an industrial engineer by trade, is that correct? That's right. That's my engineering training. And I spent about 25 years in corporate America doing new product development for GT Sylvania and then later on Corning and basically was a product engineer, a process engineer, a manufacturing engineer, a project engineer, and then ultimately a, a supervisor of uh, new product development. And have you retired from that? Yes. My, our time spent now is more in the area of, of uh, taking care of Goat Island and uh, managing some real estate. So, Tom, let me bring you into this. I know your family has very deep roots in Maine, uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, we could talk for a long time about the subject, but could you tell us a little bit about the history of the Bradburys in this area? Sure. My great-grandfather moved to uh, Cape Porpoise 
in the late 20s or early 30s. And then my grandfather and his wife, who was from Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, moved here during the Depression when things were pretty bad in the city. And they established their family here, and uh, that's where I grew up. My mother's side of the family moved on to the Pier Road, which is where I still live in uh, 1735. And my sixth great-grandfather was living in the house that I live in now in the 1740s and 50s. So so we move like glacial shift very, <laughs> very slowly. Tell me your connection to the Bradbury Market. Uh, Bradbury's Market is in Cape Porpoise, and it was directly across the street from the homestead that my grandfather moved into, and he started the store. And after World War II, uh, my father came back and went into the business with his brother, and uh, it was sold to a two gentlemen from New York, and they improved it and and washed over it for a while until my cousin and I actually bought it from them, and we ran it. Uh, so it's been a part of the family for my lifetime, certainly. So, Tom, uh, I believe you've been involved with the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust for more than 40 years. Uh, how did that get started? How did you get involved with that? And uh, why would you say you've devoted so much of your life to that cause, to that organization? I was actually carrying groceries out to the car for uh, Tad Dow, who was at that time the president of the trust. And he asked if I would like to become involved in the organization. And I asked him what that meant. And he said, well, they meet twice a year and they have coffee and donuts at his house. And they talk about things that are going on and things that should be done to protect the beauty of the town and and I thought that I could do that, uh, and, but I didn't do it well because I missed one of the two meetings. And the following year, he asked if I would consider becoming the president of the organization because he was going on to lead uh, an organization that was founding conservation commissions in the state of Maine, of which he created 200. And um, I said, what do I have to do? And he said, well, you have to bring the coffee and donuts. <laughs> And so I thought I could handle that and uh, became the president of the organization. And immediately we started a campaign that kept us busy, not twice a year, but constantly, which has been the case now for the past 44 years. Yeah, I know the, the trust has done a lot aside from uh, managing Goat Island, which is a, a very important part of what, what you do. But can you say a little bit more about uh, what the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust is and the different things the organization does? Sure. Our first mission was the harbor and of Cape Orpus. And so we, uh, we had already, through another group, helped to protect Vaughn's Island and Redden's Island. And then uh, when I took over as uh, head of the organization, we immediately started to protect Cape Island, which is the outermost um, island in the Cape Orpus chain. And we didn't know how. It was $100,000. We didn't know how we were going to get the money. We contracted to try to raise it over five years. And we started out with $16 or so and managed to protect that. And in our enthusiasm, we said, well, why don't we protect the whole harbor? And in the midst of all doing all that, we also were contacted by people at Goose Rocks Beach that wanted to protect their beach lots and subsequently were 
contacted by people that wanted to protect wooded lots that they owned and and we steadily grew to now we own all but one of the islands of Cape Orpus, much of the beach at Goose Rocks and 2,600 acres of land in Kinnebunkport with 25 miles of trails. So that led us on to also getting involved in education because we found that kids weren't going onto the landscape. And so we started an education program called Trust in Our Children, uh, which has done very well. And out of Trust in Our Children was created a Gulf of Maine uh, class that was a combination between the University of New England and uh, Kenny Monk High School, where the high school students get college credits for being a part of the class. And they're learning about uh, climate issues and other issues to do with the coast, which when we uh, realized the damage that rising tides could cause to the islands and go to island light, we created an organization called the Climate Institute using the Gulf of Maine class as the basis. And, uh, and we're currently trying to take that to scale. Programs we're creating are now uh, in all 50 states and uh, we've got 21 employees and we're doing the best we can to, uh, to find out how to address the climate issue. That is also so great. And conservation and education uh, go so uh, closely together and uh, it's, it's all very important. So organizations done such, such good work. So let's, let's move on to, to Goat Island. Uh, and uh, starting out, we'll talk about some of the early history, and uh, Scott or Tom or both of you might want to take this, but uh, first, uh, first a little bit about Cape Porpoise, where uh, Goat Island is and the other islands you were just talking about. Uh, it was one of the earliest English settlements on the coast of Maine, one of the first major settlements. What makes Cape Porpoise and its harbor so uh, interesting historically? What makes them such a, a special place? Well, Cape Porpoise is one of the only natural harbors between Portsmouth and Portland. It, so it's a place of refuge for uh, mariners for as long as they've been here. So what's amazing is we started an archaeological project to find out what happened on the islands. And we found evidence that, that there have been people living on them now for the past 7,000 years. And in fact, two years ago, uh, in the midst of this, we found a canoe in the mud uh, not far from Goat Island. And it was a dugout canoe and had a paddle with it, which has never been done before. Had it carbon dated. Carbon dating went to 1367 to 1460. So it was the oldest canoe found in the northeast quadrant of the country, including the Maritimes. What's important about that is that these islands have been loved and used for thousands of years. And what we're trying to do now is unearth some of that story even even while we try to protect the story that we know and and uh, keep it moving forward that's fantastic i wasn't aware of all that uh so what let's uh i mean there's so much we can talk about here today but let's move on to goat island itself uh why was a lighthouse established on goat island in 1833 in the 1820s Bunkport was one of the major maritime centers shipbuilding was a a key to that and and fishing had always been a part of the community and there were a great many fishermen coming and going from the harbor and it's a dangerous entrance that that needed to be identified and protected it is i know i've read that there's been it'd be up to 400 barks and schooners that would come in to seek refuge during a storm 
and it is treacherous coming in there with the reefs on both sides of the entrance to the to the harbor and I think that uh, was enough certainly to warrant having a lighthouse there. And uh, there's obviously a long history there, almost 200 years. The light station established in 1833. And uh, for many years under both the Civilian Lighthouse Service and later the Coast Guard, it was a family light station. You had, coast, uh, had uh, light keepers living there with their families for all those years. Uh, until 1990, it was actually one of the last lighthouses in the country to be automated. So uh, I'm wondering if you have any particular stories about the keepers and families there over the years that stand out for you. I'm sure there's there's probably, probably a lot. Well, we know that the Wakefields were a part of the lighthouse for years and years at the turn of the century. And, and there were things going on then that we forget about now. For instance, coal schooners used to come into the pier and, and had to guide these sizable schooners through the channel. And, and the trolley came down onto the pier and brought the coal back to the mills in Sanford. So what we've seen in all of my lifetime as this very peaceful fishing village was at one time also a commercial center as well that, that carried with it all of the, the types of ships that were, that were being used in that time. I, I would talk to him, a grandfather figure of mine called Seth Pinkham, who when he was young remembers that a coal schooner fully loaded came into the through the channel one time and was not met by a harbor master or pilot that would that would steer it in and the captain didn't want to wait and so he sailed in and he said he there was a foot or two at the bow a foot or two at the stern at the pier and and he just came in perfectly he said had that vessel touched the pier the whole structure would have come down there was so much weight on the vessel but that was the skill of the early mariners that were coming and going. Mm -hmm. That being said, it was always a dangerous harbor entrance and, and the lighthouse facilitated the protection of countless numbers of sailors over the years. Not having been here for the first part of my life, I don't know a lot about the, uh, the past keepers, but I can pick up on uh, the blizzard of 1978 because I was in college then and remember the uh, the havoc that it wreaked on the uh, the East Coast and you know Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, and uh, that's when uh, keeper Marty Kane and his wife Kathy and their two kids were out on the island, and that's when the water washed over the island and washed the 125 foot covered walkway uh, from the the island down to the end of the harbor. And to hear Marty tell the story, it's really something because he had just walked through the keepers, uh, just walked through the covered walkway after checking on the light, stepped into the kitchen, heard a, a loud noise behind him, and he looked and the covered walkway was washed away. And one of the more challenging things for them the next day is the Coast Guard did send a helicopter, but they couldn't all fit in the helicopter they were only able to take two people, so they had to make a choice between their children as to which child stayed with Marty and which one left with Kathy. And that's that's quite a decision to have to make as a family. And that's kind of where I where I pick up with uh, the the keepers' experiences on Goat Island. I don't know if it's a keepers' experience, but my grandfather, when he was young, 
had two brothers and a coal schooner went up onto the island and broke apart. And he and uh, his family and other families throughout the town uh, saw this as potential heat for the winter. And so after school, they would row out and fill baskets with, with coal and bring it back to the house along the cove. And by the end of the uh, year, they had gathered seven tons of coal off the island. And I thought that was pretty good, but they said that a, couple, a family in um, Turbis Creek was able to take 11 tons off the island. Wow. And when we go out there to this day, they'll, the, Scott and Karen will know this, I still look for coal because there are pieces all through the shoreline. And I bring them back just in memory of uh, my grandfather on that day 120 years ago now. I know for so many years we treated the coal as like a black diamond to find one. <laughs> and then the uh, Mother's Day storm of 2007 came and I was sending people home with uh, shopping bags full of coal because <laughs> I found a pocket of it that was uh, had been idle for many years and stirred it up and washed it up onto the island. Uh, I've uh, heard of that happening in other places too, coal schooners uh, being wrecked and people saving money on their heating bills by, by collecting it. I just want to throw in too, you talk about the blizzard of 78, I remember that so well. I was in college too, going to college in Boston and was stuck at my parents' house in, in Lynn for, for a solid week. He couldn't go anywhere. But I, I've met Marty Kane and his wife and son uh, and uh, heard firsthand what that was like. I remember Marty who the keeper uh, at the time said uh, it looked like to him like the uh, the walkway uh, folding up like an accordion in the, in the water as he saw right, it going yes. away. Yeah, but they did all get off safely by by helicopter eventually. Yeah, yeah. So Bob, you wanted to to say something? Yes, Jeremy, I do have a question. I know Gold Island is not far offshore, but at the same time, any island offshore, get a sense from research, talking to keepers, how isolated they may have felt, even though they weren't that far from the harbor. We're coming into the winter here now, and we know how the seas can be. So what was the sense of isolation for the keepers and their families? Very interesting. It, it, it's really how the individual keepers' families perceived it. Some of them thrived on it and loved it and, and to have that type of isolation. It's, and I always felt when I, when I left the pier that I was leaving all my issues, all my work issues, all the things from shore behind me, and I was just entering a whole new world. There are other keepers' families that I've spoken with, and it was one of their worst experiences because it, it was very difficult. These were very young families, sometimes just married, and that isolation could be difficult. And I think it really just mattered, you know, on the individuals as to how, how it affected them personally. Mm-hmm. But even in the, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been all that isolated because you go back into some of the diaries from the 1800s and it was quite common during good weather for uh, people to come out and collect dandelions. We still have more dandelions out there than I've ever seen anywhere. But the uh, people used to row out and sail out and collect the dandelions. They used the roots. They used the flowers. They used the, the leaves and so forth to make wines and teas and uh, medicinal elixirs and, and that type of stuff. So um, being not too far offshore, it did allow for you know, some visitors to come and, and break that isolation a bit. 
I remember one of the keepers telling me that there was a big storm and there they were required to have food and and supplies and everything for their family in case a storm came. Well, they had a baby and they ran out of baby formula. And I can remember Yogi Noonan going out with his boat and throwing formula at the island from his boat because he couldn't land because it was too rough and just heaving baby formula at the island. <laughs> that was a that was a funny story. Yeah. So Goat Island continued as a family station right up until it was its automation in 1990. And it's my understanding that when it was automated, there was actually kind of delayed that it was talked about for a while before it actually happened. Uh, I kind of remember following that at the time. And there was talk that, uh, that the people in the area didn't want to see the place unmanned or de-staffed because they liked having uh, eyes on the island at the entrance to the harbor there. Uh, the Coast Guard was out there for a long time and through the presidency of President Bush number 41 and as part of as part of the detail to watch over Walker's Point. The Secret Service worked with them in that regard, but um, but it was primarily manned by by Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And and then the the trust got involved after the Coast Guard left when his presidency ended. I noticed, um, I know when I've done some of the research, I came across some articles from the 1970s when automation of the station was first discussed. And I, I guess that the local community put up quite a, quite a stink, I guess, if you will, and wanted to see that light station continue to be manned. And I think that's what assisted in putting it off to being the last manned light station in Maine. Part of the reason for that is is borne out by what's happened since the trust has taken it over because uh, Scott and Karen have had something to do with a rescue or or some important mission just about every year since they've been out there still. And, and uh, I think people were right in having eyes and ears out on the island as well is, I think, really important to the harbor. Yeah. Well, and again, thank you for, for clarifying that about the uh, during the presidency of George H.W. Bush. For people who listeners who don't know, Walker's Point, the Bush estate there is within sight of Goat Island and vice versa. Uh, obviously, a very prominent property there on the coast in Kenny Bunkport. And uh, I had the impression that it was Secret Service there for that for that period that the Coast Guard had left. But thank you for clarifying that. So Coast Guard was there, but the Secret Service was also involved. They also, um, from what I understand, there was a hole in the radar system, um, and they had special radar equipment and the personnel necessary to run that when the bushes were on uh, Walker's Point. Is there anything else uh, related to the history of uh, Goat Island and the relationships of the, the Bush family? The Bushes love Kinneybunkport, love Maine, loved Walker's Point, and they loved the view from it. They loved overseeing having the lighthouse there, and they loved picnicking on the islands and that sort of thing. From the time the president was a, a child, we could remember going out to the islands. And even in recent years, uh, I remember uh, hearing that he had taken other family members over to Trots Island towards the last years of his life and always considered it a very special experience. And being on the water was a main part of his life, and he loved coming into Cape Orpus Harbor and he had the Secret Service boat following behind, and it was always kind of thrilling when to see him going by. And he would take guests out to 
view of the lighthouse and harbor, take them out to dinner at the pier. And he, he had a, what was called a cigarette boat, is that right, that he would tool around the area in? The, the Fidelity, and I think it was triple 300 horsepower engines on it. So when he opened them up, he could fly, and and he did. And uh, that was a, it was a great joy to him to do so. You really see him out in good weather. But if it was the winds were blowing, it was foggy, and the waves were flying, that's when you could hear Fidelity wide open, and uh, <laughs> you could tell he was having quite a thrill for himself. So to get back to, to Goat Island and its relationship to the trust, how, how did the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust get involved with Goat Island? Well, our goal had been to protect the harbor and keep it the way it traditionally had been. And, of course, the focal point of the entire harbor is Goat Island. So, frankly, our hope was that the Coast Guard would stay there forever and maintain it and, and uh, keep it just that. But when it came time that they were going to leave and the questions of what would happen to the lighthouse started being asked, we thought that it would be a natural addition to the organization and be a focal point for the organization and our ownership of other properties in the harbor. So we started talking to people about how to make that happen, which was an extended process. It happened a lot faster than I expected because we, I think we got involved with the Conservation Trust in September of 1992. And at that time, at that meeting, I remember it coming up that Goat Island was, it was going to be completely automated and, and no manning of the station any longer. And you know, we kind of tossed around whether we might be able to get a lease and be able to open that up like we do all the rest of our properties to people coming out and being able to enjoy it. Well, by April of 1993, we had a lease in hand for five, five years, and we were off to the races. But that's how I remember it happening. And then the trust got ownership in 98, right, through the Main Lights program? We did, yes. Yeah, we were part of the Main Lights program proudly, and, and we did uh, obtain the deed to the island, and you know that has allowed us to go even further and restore the island to its pre-glories of the mid-1950s. And Scott, you and Karen became the caretakers starting when again? Well, our first trip, actually, Tom and I went out Oh, is it sometime early in, in 93, in late spring of 93? I think at that time our organization was pretty small and we happened to have a sailboat and Tom and I sailed over from Goose Rocks and dropped an anchor and rowed ashore and said, okay, what did we just get ourselves into? And we were greeted with a giant dumpster on the lawn full of, oh, uh, what the, what was in the house at one time and, uh, tall grass and rocks everywhere, and I mean, quite honestly, we weren't thinking about being uh, associated, but we we just all got together, got a group of us, and started tossing the rocks overboard, weed whacking everything down, and and then once you realize how much work it is, kind of like living on a small farm, we found it was easier to live on the island and keep up with the work than it was to try to keep running back and forth and back and forth. And you spent uh, summers out there for for many years. You, you still spend a lot of time out there in the summer. Is that is that correct? Yes, quite a bit. Now we we were out there oh, from like mid May to mid September with our family. And I, I don't have the number of years. 
I just remember when the kids started to hit around oh, 14 and 16, uh, there weren't any fast cars, no girlfriends. Uh, they had pretty much had it with, uh, with the island at that time. But that passion has, uh, has come back around uh, since. The excitement of those early years was the fact that when the Coast Guard was out there, that was uh, visitors weren't really allowed. And so there were, in those early years, we were welcoming people to the island that had grown up around it, that had washed over the island. There were lobstermen who had worked on the harbor for their entire lives who had never stepped foot on the island. And it was a thrill for all of them to be able to get out there and to look it over and to see this, this part of their life that they pass by every day and to finally be able to go on shore and, and see what it was all like. It was on a lot of people's bucket lists. I, I think this is one of the things that Karen and I really picked up on is we, we'd get some real elderly folks in their late 80s, early 90s, again, that had grown up in Cape Porpoise, had never been out there. And it, it was just amazing. I mean, they would crawl up the tower on their hands and knees, up the stairs, and, you know, they were like little kids when they got to the top. It, it was It was really a sight to to behold. Yeah, that's a pretty special thing. And this reminds me so much of an interview I just did with somebody else about uh, Baker's Island Light in Salem, Mass. Scott, I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Uh, that's a very similar situation where it was off limits to the public for many, many years until recently when Essex uh, Heritage that owns it now has opened it up for tours. So local people have never uh, been there, have had a chance to see it up close. It's a, it's a really great thing uh, in both cases. So, Scott, uh, Dick Curtis was a friend of yours from Marblehead, and he also came to Cape Porpoise, uh, ended up being the winter caretaker at Goat Island. And correct me if I have any of this wrong, but uh, can you tell me a little bit more about Dick and how he got involved there? Sure. Well, I, Dick was about nine or ten years older than me. I met him when I was 12 years old, and he always enchanted me with uh, his adventures up to northern New Hampshire and uh, he's a real outdoors person, kind of a a rogue naturalist. And uh, when we took over Goat Island, there wasn't anything there. I mean, living was pretty crude. We didn't have any furnishings, and we were off to a, a real slow start. Well, I know Dick had, had been around the water. He was a wharf rat as a kid, and then he later worked um, deep-sea winter lobstering out of Gloucester for uh, Bobby Brown. And just, you know, I knew he could put up with some real tough environments. He had lived, oh, probably five months a year without electricity and use an outhouse and all this. So uh, not knowing what we had in store, I just thought he would be the, the perfect person. And uh, one day I went down to the bait shack and I smeared some bait juice on the back of a postcard of Goat Island. I put my cassette recorder down on Goose Rocks Beach, recorded some waves. And at the at the time, Dick actually was living out in Denver, Colorado. I sent him those those things. Never heard back from him. Two weeks later, he shows up on my doorstep with two suitcases. He, he left his business. He left his, his apartment and everything in Colorado and, and never went back. So uh, he... Dick dove in. He was the perfect person to, you know, be able to be somebody living out there, especially in the wintertime. He, he loved it. It was right up his alley. The, but he also uh, was a pretty colorful character, uh, worked at Langsford Lobster um, in the summer times, and 
Um, on the other side of things, he could be very uh, loud, boisterous, funny, and uh, extroverted as even, uh, on the other side of the scale. He, uh, he, he, were, he was you know, just a great person to have out there. Yeah, I uh, I only met Dick once, but I remember it quite clearly, and he definitely had a big personality. Uh, met him at the, the wharf there at Cape Porpoise. And very sadly, we have to talk about this, of course, uh, Dick Curtis died in a boating accident uh, near the island in 2002. Uh, could, you, could you tell us what happened, Scott? Most of it we have to kind of deduce by uh, the evidence that we found, but I, I had seen Dick earlier in the day, so I had seen basically how he was dressed. And it was Memorial Day weekend, uh, 2002. And he had, uh, he was taking care of a couple of friends' dogs. And then he had his, his dog and he got out of work, went back to the island. And, uh, it was the first day. It was in the eighties. It was a nice day. He got, took the dogs out for a boat ride. And then, uh, I think it, from the times that he was seen, it, it indicates that the water wasn't high enough to just come into a nice gentle landing on the beach. So I think he just went to spend, uh, you know, another, it looked like maybe another, you know, 10, 15 minutes and there'd be enough water to, to sneak in there. And I, it'd be quite common for him to go take a ride out around the bell buoy and, and come back. And I think that's probably what he did. The seas and the winds were building. And when, we went out to the island the next day. I did see a life jacket um, that was floating out off of the island, but it was staying stationary and didn't know quite what to make out of that. Um, I, I think in retrospect, that is probably what lured him into that area, which was a very dangerous rock-filled area. At, at certain tides, it looks like a washing machine, the way the waves come in and swirl around. And... Uh, what we ended up finding is where that life jacket had been tied. It had since, it got so stormy, it tore the life jacket off. But after spending several days searching and trying to put the pieces together, uh, it turned out that that was the site of where the boat went down. And he was found with the things in the boat that did not float. So that would indicate more than likely that the boat flipped over and hit him in the head, knocked him unconscious. Because he was a big guy. He was a strong guy, a good swimmer. He was only, at that tide, it was about 150 feet off the island. So it wasn't far. And you know, sure enough, we I, I did find the bow of the boat sunk on one corner of the island. And then I looked over to Trot's Island thinking, okay, if this is the way things happen, anything that floated should be over there. I looked, and there are the life jackets, the gas cans, and and so forth. So that's the best I can put it together. Um, just a very unfortunate accident, and one that makes us and should make anybody just aware of how dangerous it is on the water. Um, no matter how many years you've been there, no matter what you've encountered, um, you've got to really be careful and aware of your situation. Uh, the uh, the sea is a treacherous friend, as the lighthouse keeper Kate Moore in Connecticut once said. I always love that quote. So, Scott, I remember visiting you on Goat Island not long after that, after uh, Dick's uh, passing, and uh, we were standing on the, the catwalk at the top of the lighthouse, and you said to me, you know, Dick and I used to, to joke that we'd uh, haunt this place after we die. I remember clearly you saying that to me that day. 
And I know that you have uh, reasons to believe uh, that Dick may still be hanging out there at Goat Island. Uh, and uh, I actually spent a night there with uh, New England Ghost Project about 10 years ago. Maybe we can say a little bit about that. But Scott, would you want to share one or two of the stories that make you think that maybe Dick is, is uh, still there in some in some form? Sure. Well, initially, I guess I had no idea what to believe about spirits and afterlife and all, and all of that stuff. But I have no sense. I see nothing. I hear nothing. <laughs> um, but what has happened over the years is I've had several people that are mediums that seek me out to give me information. And this would have been August of 2002. Uh, I was walking across the front lawn with uh, my neighbor and his girlfriend, and I heard her whisper to him, this place is haunted. And I heard her and I said, well, I hope it is. You know, my best friend, you know, just kind of died out here and it'd be great if he's still around. And, and as we continued on up into the tower, she stopped me um, at the, the first level and said that Dick was there, that she had the ability to hear him and that he was okay, he was safe and not to worry about him and that he hadn't been drinking. <laughs> so later on, we were sitting down on the boat ramp, and she mentioned to me that Dick communicated to her that he would make himself known electronically when he was there. And I'm like, well, good, because I don't have any other sense that you're here. So, And so it went. And then that same year, we... Had I think President Putin came to Walker's Point and met with both was it 41 and 43? And I'm thinking, well, what would Dick do in this situation? And one thing he would always do if there was someone from another country visiting is he would get a flag. And I also knew that Dick was not necessarily politically correct. So I went out and I got a Russian flag and I ran, I I put the Russian flag next to the American flag, which you're not supposed to do, but it was wrapped around the gallery of, of the lighthouse, and they were pointed over towards Walker's Point. And I was leaving a little bit later, and I was going down the slipways, and I saw this boat come into the harbor, and it was coming in fast and hot, and all of a sudden, he throttled down, and I could see President Bush taking pictures of the flags. And I says, well, Dickie, what do you think of that? Well, the foghorn went on. And that in itself is a story because he apparently could control the foghorn. Every time I came to the island, it'd be a beautiful sunny day. I'd walk up from the beach, get to the berm on the beach, and the foghorn would toot once. And then after... The foghorn sounded. It went off almost continuously for the next three years. The Coast Guard put nine new fog detectors onto the, the lighthouse. And in, in each instance, it would just stop for a small, a short while, and then it would continue to blow. And I think ultimately, when the island was solarized in 2008, there was a point at which 
everything was disconnected, both the AC power and the backup DC power, and the foghorn went off. And you should have seen the faces of the Coast Guardsmen that were there. And that they couldn't explain that they're showing me, there's nothing connected. This shouldn't be going off. I'm saying, that's Dick. <laughs> and some years later, that story got passed down through the Asa Navigation team. And we had a team doing preventative maintenance. And they had asked me about that story. And they were changing the batteries out. So it was completely disconnected. We were having lunch, talking about this story and the top foghorn tooted three times like so and and just various various other things happened heaters turned on that hadn't worked in years when i was cold and wet after flying santa uh the heat came on i just say dicky we if, you, if you're here turn on the heat and you know the heat comes on warm me up i fell asleep and then wake up and the thing never worked again so and then I, I would quite honestly say, so for, for years there were some indications of Dick's presence on the island. And then as, as you alluded to earlier, Jeremy, is the, uh, the New England Ghost Project folks, when uh, it came out, um, that, that was quite an experience because it, it seems as though Goat Island is not just uh, the home of, of Dick visiting, but um, that there are other spirits that, uh, that visit there as well. I think we came across a, a young young, 15-year-old person that fell off a schooner in 1790. And I, I know that other, there were other presences made at that time. But I think the thing that was most significant for me is that that was the last indication of Dick on the island. I have not had any indication of his presence since. And during that weekend... Uh, one of the things uh, that occurred, there were two mediums out there, and there was a message that Dick was trying to get to Karen and I, evidently, because one of the things that ended up happening coming through the mediums was, it was just repeated over and over, no Boston Monday, no Boston Monday, no Boston Monday. And I'm like, what? And, you know, and then I got thinking later on, well, our, our youngest son, Eric, was uh, going to school just south of Boston, and we were going to pass through Boston to go visit him. And with the experiences we had had, we actually ended up calling Eric because I wouldn't come. I said, nope, they told me I wouldn't go either, so... And, and I, I asked through these mediums, is all right if I go on Tuesday? Okay, if I go on Thursday? Yes, yes. You know, is all right if I go on Monday? No. Are we going to be in an accident? Yes. And, and so on and so forth. So it seems as though somehow or another, this energy came about pulling this group of people together um, at this particular time to get, you know, word to us at the 11th hour not to travel. So... Needless to say, over the years between that and what other people have seen and sensed, you know, it's, it seems to be a pretty active place. Well, I remember all that well, the thing about uh, don't go, go to Boston, etc. But I, another thing I remember so clearly about that night is Leslie Marden, the medium who was part of the group. When we first went in the keeper's house, she picked up a pair of binoculars and she was kind of clutching them tightly. And she said, 
these belonged to somebody. Uh, they were these were important to somebody who you know was was really important in the history of the, this place. And she said, I just want to hold on to these. And she said, I I see a tall man with a mustache. And you know she didn't do any homework. She didn't know anything about the place at all. I'm sure of that. And I remember a little later, and she, none of us told her anything about what happened to Dick and everything. And we're upstairs uh, in one of the bedrooms, and I guess that had been Dick's room when he was there. And do you remember, Scott, she, at one point she turned, nobody had said his name or anything. She turned to you and she said, oh, we're talking about your friend Dickie here, aren't we? It's out of the blue. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, that was very unexpected, but it was, it was obviously that he was making his presence known. And it, the appearance that he was able to project to these mediums was what he looked like when I first met him when I was, you know, much younger, when I was 12. And I guess that kind of gave a way to know that that it was him. And she she said, he, oh, he's very much here. He said, she says he loves this place and he's here, uh, which is what I like to believe, that his spirit is there because, or at least was there for a while because he, he loved it so much. So I just want to, just one more thing along those lines. I thought I'd ask you, Bob, if you have any take on the, the idea of a, the, the fog signal sounding when it's not attached to any power source. Have you ever heard of that happening anywhere? Is that possible? <laughs> You can answer it truthfully from your point of view. Uh, it shouldn't be possible. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. It sounds like Dick may be the uh, anti-AIDS navigation technician who just <laughs> likes to have fun. So. Could be. To learn more about the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust and Goat Island Light Station, visit kportrust.org. That is K-P-O-R-T-T-R-U-S-T dot org. On the site, you can also order their new 50th anniversary book, To Preserve Forever, The History of the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust. Yeah, and it's a really nice book. It's on the shelf behind me right now. Uh, one of the ways you can visit Goat Island is through a tour with New England Echo Adventures out of Kenny Bunk. Visit uh, New England Echo Adventures, that's New England ECO Adventures.com to learn more about that. So, Bob, next week we'll hear part two of the conversation about Goat Island. So, what were your impressions of our visit with Tom, Karen, and Scott that day? I'll tell you, aside from the preservation uh, winds that they've had at that site, you could plainly see A, they love what they do, they care deeply about not only the light station, but the organization itself. And their sense of community and how they're interconnected to the community was very impressive and how that's going to foster a new, you know, a preservation ethic within new people is moving forward. And it was funny because even talking with Tom at that point and uh, at one point and how those challenges and the people they're reaching are changing over time and how that requires different types of focuses. So they were very impressive and uh, we already knew that, but it was yeah. just a reminder again. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, they they definitely have that passion for the place, which is basically the number one in, ingredient. Everything else will follow eventually if you have that that passion and they have it. So I want to remind everyone to check out USLHS.org to learn more about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers 
including tours, a research catalog, the passport program, and much more. Another thing I want to mention is the music we use in the podcast. Someone uh, was just asking me about that in an email recently. The theme music uh, we've been using, I think, for uh, at least two or three months now, uh, using at the beginning of the show, is a piece called London, created by Musa Production. That's M-U-Z-A Production, and available at audiojungle.net. Uh, I just really liked it, decided to keep it as the theme. I've tried a bunch of pieces of music for the opening theme, and I, I settled on that one, uh, at least for now. And that song that's playing now is This Little Light of Mine, right? Yes, it is. Uh, that song goes back to the 1920s. Its exact origins are unclear. Uh, it was adapted for use in the American Civil Rights Movement, became quite popular in the 1960s. Various versions have been uh, sung and recorded uh, around the world. The version we use in the podcast is performed by the great American musician, Roger McGuinn. I saw him perform when I was in college, by the way. It was a thrill for me. Uh, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for his work with the birds. I think you do a great job, Jeremy, with taking the music and placing it in here for this podcast. It's all part of the production, especially when you have something like this audio, I think like a lot of these are. Um, you do a really good job of mixing that up and keeping it interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, it's fun. It's fun for me uh, being a, a film production person from way back. Uh, this is uh, almost the same sort of thing. Somebody did uh, complain at one point that sometimes I had the music too loud and it was almost drowning out the voices. So I try to be sensitive about that. Uh, and uh, hopefully I've achieved uh, the proper balance at this point. So again, uh, thank you for co-hosting today and for being part of the Goat Island interview, Bob. And I will see you next time. We'll be recording the, uh, the next episode. As always, uh, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine